This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we've partnered with the Leave No Trace Center for Outdoor Ethics in advance of the upcoming Arches Leave No Trace Hotspot, which is September 24th through 27th. This event works to help address the increasing recreation problems in Arches National Park. Today we get to talk about the science behind the Leave No Trace, or LNT, recommendations for engaging with the outdoors, with the head of LNT's research team. My name is Ben Lawhon. I'm the Senior Director of Research and Consulting at Leave No Trace, and I have been with Leave No Trace for just over 20 years. Concerns about recreation impacts are not new and date back to a time when wilderness legislation was first being drafted. So the Lever Trace concepts date back more than 50 years, I would say, in their sort of current iteration. This idea of enjoying the outdoors responsibly is not something that's terribly new. That said, when you look at the current Leave No Trace program and what we think of, most people think of today as Leave No Trace, that started really dating back to the 1960s. The 1964 Wilderness Act was passed. And at that time, there was a significant push by land managers and conservationists and others to encourage people to go out and enjoy their public lands. And as a result, in the 1970s, we started to see an accumulation of these recreation-related impacts on public lands. These impacts started to grow over time. And I think what ultimately was realized is that it wasn't that people were acting in a malicious way. People don't generally wake up and say, you know, how do I, what can I do to harm the earth today? It was just ignorance. People didn't understand how to minimize their impacts in the outdoors, nor was there any real science around that or any real deep understanding of the consequences of our actions. And so the federal land management agencies, notably the USDA Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management and the National Park Service started these varying programs to educate visitors about enjoying uh, our parks and protected areas in a responsible way. And there were different types of programs. You saw things like wilderness manners or no trace camping or wilderness ethics but there was no real interagency collaboration. And there was essentially no national leadership. Each agency was kind of doing their own thing. And as we moved into the 80s and certainly into the late 80s, there began to be, there began to be a lot of support around this idea of a national program that would be applicable across all public lands. And this idea of no trace camping was really sort of formulated and then it became leave no trace. And so in the early 90s, there was an outdoor recreation summit in Washington, D.C. It involved the federal agencies, uh, entities from the outdoor recreation industry, think, you know, entities like equipment manufacturers and that sort of thing. And at this summit, what was really the outcome of this was that there needed to be a nonprofit entity formed to drive this Leave No Trace program forward, to really raise money and awareness and create partnerships and develop curriculum and training materials and information and bring together academics and scientists and practitioners. And so in 1994, we were formed as an NGO. We continue to grow and evolve and Leave No Trace messaging and the program continues to grow and evolve. That said, we know that it's the most widely used outdoor ethics program on public lands in the US. And because of that, we have a really good, consistent presence on the land. That's not to say that there's you know, op- not opportunities to continue to improve and there are more and more people spending time outside. Our workload is growing exponentially, but there's a lot of opportunity there. And so in terms of kind of the quick history, that's really it. And it's led us to where we are today. 
Can you explain to us what Leave No Trace in its current iteration really is? So Leave No Trace is not right or wrong. It's, it's not uh, rules. It's not regulations. There's, we have no regulatory capacity or authority. Leave No Trace is a, is a framework for making good decisions about enjoying the outdoors responsibly. That's all it is. You know, the most common answer to Leave No Trace questions is it depends. You know, there's lots of things to consider in terms of how do we best minimize our own individual but cumulative impact. Uh, Leave No Trace is not about perfection. We're about action. If everyone who spent time outside did one thing to minimize their impact, think how much better conditions on the ground might be in our parks and protected areas. If you go out one day and you pick up after your pet and you actually pack that bag out to a trash can, great, you left leaving a trace. If you go out the next day and you pack up your pet's waste and throw it away and you stuck to the trails, that's two things. The cumulative effect of all these good actions is how our public lands ultimately win. And so I, I think it's really important for people to understand that it's leaving a trace is not an all or nothing prospect. We don't expect people to levitate over the ground. What we want to do is inspire people to act because we think of leaving a trace as a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, there's a lot of impacts. And on the other end of the spectrum, there may not be very many at all, maybe none. And what we're trying to get people to do is just find your place on that spectrum because doing something is better than doing nothing. You mentioned early on in the journey, there was a recognition that there wasn't kind of education available. People just didn't know. But specifically, you mentioned there was an education based on science. And I was wondering the relationship between scientific research and, and Leave No Trace and, and how those principles are informed by science. Excellent question. So Leave No Trace, we are science-based in terms of the specific recommendations, the practices, the tactics, the techniques. We're also science-based in terms of how we deploy our education and training. To the extent possible, we try to be data-driven in our approach. So that first part, the science that has informed the seven principles and the bulleted recommendations that you would see associated with Leave No Trace, that's really based on a, a field of scientific inquiry known as recreation ecology, which is the study of recreation-related impacts. It looks at their causes. It also looks at how those impacts can be minimized, mitigated, but it also explores the managerial implications of those impacts. As a land management community, what do they need to know about visitor-created impacts and how to manage or mitigate those things? And so there's only a handful of recreation ecologists globally. We work with a number of the US-based recreation ecologists and have for many, many years. And so their research really informs the specific tangible things we recommend, like camping 200 feet from water or utilizing cat holes to dispose of human waste or choosing a good campsite on a durable surface to minimize the trampling of vegetation. I'd say the other field of science I mentioned that helps us understand are we being effective? Is the training that we offer actually influencing people's decisions? And how do we best influence people's decisions? That's known as human dimensions of natural resources. And for the past 10 years, uh, I've really led the effort at Leave No Trace in collaboration with lots of researchers around the country, looking at specific behaviors of interest, specific topics of interest in terms of how do we better understand people's relationship to parks and protected areas and what they view as their role in protecting those places. And how do we identify the leverage points, things like attitudes or norms or perceptions? How do we identify those leverage points to really effectively educate these people? So they actually will maybe think about the decisions they make. Maybe they even just outright change what they do in the outdoors. And so we really use these two scientific fields to inform Leave No Trace as a whole 
which ultimately increases our efficacy on the land. I would assume that this is an ongoing process. Like is, is how, how often are these principles updated and the science re-examined? So the principles themselves, we don't really update the seven principles per se. There are different adaptations of the principles. So the seven principles, as most people understand, the plan ahead and prepare and travel and camp on durable surfaces, dispose of waste properly and so forth. Those are largely sort of static, if you will. And what we have found over time is that we can adapt the information that's associated with each principle for an environment, for an ecosystem. So we have leave no trace for winter, for angling, for sea kayaking, for desert use, for canyoneering, mountain biking, et cetera. And that adaptation process and the updating is just ongoing for us because science emerges, science changes, best practices change. You know, I can give you an example uh, for many years in bear country, whether it's grizzly bears or black bears, we advocated hanging food 10 feet up and four feet out from the nearest branch or the tree trunk. Well, in the last 15 years or so, that was updated to 12 feet off the ground, six feet out from the nearest branch or trunk. And that was based on research indicating that bears, in fact, could breach a hang that was not 12 feet off the ground. So we have these examples of where science has continued to inform our practices. So it's an ongoing process for us. A lot of the ideas in the recreation community that inform how to behave in the outdoors are really from kind of white Western culture. And I was wondering what conversations are happening with and in Leave No Trace to incorporate diverse perspectives, such as indigenous knowledge and other different relationships to outdoor spaces. Definitely. You know, we've, we know that you know, certainly we've had a heightened focus within Leave No Trace as an organization on diversity, equity, inclusion, primarily in terms of ensuring that when someone picks up Leave No Trace information, regardless of who they are or their background or where they come from or what the relationship to the outdoors is, they look at Leave No Trace and they say, wow, this, this resonates with me and for how I spend time outside. So over the past year, we've been undergoing a significant DEI-related revision process to our core foundational text, our core foundational information. And we've had a lot of outside peer review on that, bringing different voices to the table, different types of people, different people with different relationships to the outdoors. And through that process, we have tapped into that traditional ecological knowledge and really wanting to make sure that we are not only honoring that, but pulling in those best practices that you know, modern science may have either overlooked or just didn't necessarily consider. And so it's been an interesting process for us. And one thing that we know about this process is there's no real finish line. You know, for many years, we just had this sort of like, here's the leave no trace curriculum and it's great. And we know it minimizes impacts and it's working. And now what we're seeing is in order to ensure that it's as inclusive as it can possibly be, it's got to be an ongoing process. It has to be this iterative process where we're taking in feedback from from anyone who's willing to provide that and updating and revising and, and really thinking about what we recommend to the outdoor enthusiasts, certainly here in the US, but globally. And so it's been very revealing, very eye-opening. It's also been very confirming in some ways when you look at practices like human waste disposal, for example, and you match that with traditional ecological knowledge, it says, look, obviously we don't have science to say that human waste and water sources is bad or say, 200 years ago, we didn't have that science, but we just intuitively knew that these two things don't mix. And so when you think about 
that knowledge. And then you pair that with today's available research. You say, hey, these practices are sound, um, not only based in traditional ecological knowledge, but based in you know, modern science. And so that's a, a, an affirming thing. We also see instances where those things are not so aligned. And in that case, it, it provides an opportunity for us to really take a more detailed look at those practices and determine what is really best. For example, when you look at traditional uses of some National Park Service land in states like Alaska, where Native Alaskans are allowed in many cases to utilize the lands differently than just you know, a regular park visitor. For example, there's harvesting that's allowed of game and fish and natural products and things. You know, you look at Leave No Trace and you look at the principle of leave what you find, which says, hey, enjoy it, but leave it there. Well, that doesn't always work when you say you've got indigenous cultures that have a very different relationship and legally have a different relationship with parks and protected areas. We just find the right balance within Leave No Trace. And that's a process that we've really undertaken in earnest. And there's clearly more work to be done. We know we haven't figured everything out, but we're on that path to doing a much better job moving forward in terms of taking in more viewpoints, more information to have a more informed curriculum and training structure and information that's available widely to anyone who spends time outdoors. Do you anticipate any, I mean, of course you're updating things and things are changing all the time, but are there specific changes or, or plans to address climate change and, and how that, that might influence LNT recommendations or, or, or ideas moving forward? That's a good question. You know, one of the things that has led to, uh, you could argue, the success of Leave No Trace in terms of how it has, has helped shape an outdoor ethic in the U.S. And again, there's lots of work to be done. But from your mission standpoint, you can be a mile wide and an inch deep, or you can be an inch wide and a mile deep. And historically, we have chosen to really focus on what we do best, which is educating people about minimizing their individual but cumulative impact when they recreate. That said, we also recognize that there are real subject matter experts in these areas, that we are not the subject matter experts. So historically, we have said, yes, we understand there are a lot of environmental issues out there. And we would encourage you to seek out people who really are those subject matter experts or organizations where that's really the people that can give you the right answers and they know the science and they understand it. And while that served us well, we also realized that Leave No Trace has a bigger role to play in creating an environmentally responsible citizenry beyond the park boundary. And so one of the things that we have looked at specifically, in fact, in 2020 and early 2021, we conducted a study looking at the potential correlations between a concept known as environmentally responsible behavior, ERB, and Leave No Trace. The thinking was, if you are affiliated in some way with Leave No Trace, you're a member of the organization, or you, you've taken the two-day Leave No Trace trainer course, or maybe you've taken the five-day Leave No Trace master educator course, the sense was that if you looked at people affiliated with Leave No Trace and their environmentally responsible behavior versus the general public sample, you probably find that people who have this predisposition to practice Leave No Trace also do things like you know, ride their bike or walk to the store instead of driving. They recycle, they compost, they, they mend items rather than throwing away or buying new. And lo and behold, the study looking at a leave no trace sample and then a nationally representative sample of the US, it did indicate there were much stronger correlations to ERB for those people in the leave no trace sample. But it also, and perhaps more importantly, identified opportunities for leave no trace broadly to expand our messaging beyond the park boundary. 
And so one of the things that we have in our new strategic plan is a really concerted focus on finding those on-ramps, if you will. How do we encourage people to not only practice leave no trace in a park or protected area, but how do we encourage them to take that ethic home? Or conversely, if they already have that ethic at home, how do we encourage them to take that ethic to the park, to the protected area? So it's this two-way exchange of ideas and ethics. And so back to your original question of climate, that's one of a, a variety of areas that we're looking at in terms of, could this become part of our suite of messaging and still be feel like an authentic part of Leave No Trace? It's not so different from responsible recreation because right, people drive to go to parks and protected areas. People fly on planes. Um, people do these things that burn fossil fuels to recreate. And so how do we have genuine messaging about that that resonates and doesn't feel like it's coming out of left field from an entity that arguably is focused solely on you know responsible recreation so these are definitely ongoing conversations particularly as visitation to parks and protected areas increases every year and covid has certainly heightened that and that's put a finer point on the need to be a little more comprehensive in our approach have you been able to effectively measure how lnt principles and that kind of education actually changes behavior? We have in some instances, a couple of things to keep in mind is that the goalposts are always moving, right? As there's more and more people spending time outside, when we start to evaluate, is leave no trace working in this area or in this area? Are we seeing trails that are not as wide? Are we seeing less human waste? Are we seeing less human wildlife conflict? If our goalposts stayed in the same place, it would be easier to demonstrate that over time. And when we've had such significant increase in visitation, certainly in the last 18 months, it makes it hard to assess that. That said, there are a handful of studies out there that have shown empirically that Leave No Trace has led to behavior change in parks and protected areas, as well as demonstrable changes in people's attitudes and their norms and their perceptions of impacts and their role in minimizing and addressing those impacts. And there's also research that has shown an improvement in resource conditions as a result of Leave No Trace educational treatments. So there is science out there and there's more science being conducted all the time that is really showing that if Leave No Trace is executed at a high level, it's strongly correlated with changes in behavior and changes in resource conditions. We can't claim causality because there's a lot of factors but we're seeing more and more evidence that it does make a difference, both in terms of the outdoor experience and in terms of resource protection. I've been doing this a long time and I have sort of trained myself to really try to look at the opportunities. You know, even COVID is a perfect example where it's like parks are overrun, absolutely overrun, highest visitation most all of us have seen in our entire lifetimes. And early on in the pandemic, particularly based on our research findings from how the pandemic was influencing recreation patterns, it was really easy to go straight to that doom and gloom perspective. And we're hearing about trash and parking issues and visitor conflict and, you know, trampling impacts and wildlife impacts and all these things. But we, I think collectively have to look at the opportunities because we can get caught up in the impacts. And I'm not suggesting those are not important and critical, but if we don't have that, positive thread in our mind of there is an opportunity here, I think we're ultimately might miss that opportunity to educate a lot of people who are now in the outdoors and have found the outdoors. And our latest research has shown that a lot of these people that, that were drawn to the outdoors because of COVID, they're here to stay. And so we have a job as educators, as outdoor enthusiasts, as conservationists to really try to help educate those people. And it's a great, it's probably the greatest opportunity I've seen in my entire career, frankly.
so you mentioned the opportunity that this time represents with all these new people coming to the outdoors. What are some of the things that you all are doing to meet this opportunity? So in addition to all the, the DEI related work, which I think is really one of our biggest opportunities. And, you know, we have to, we have so much appreciation and gratitude for all of the people who have shared feedback with us, helped us identify our blind spots. Uh, we know the work is not done, but that's been a big piece of, of this process for us. But in terms of additional opportunities, one of the biggest is really been to take Leave No Trace and simplify it to its essence. What started in the 90s is this program that was focused on backcountry and wilderness. You know, in the early 2000s, we really started focusing on front country. So we consider front country, you know, outdoor areas that are easy to get to by car and they're predominantly visited by day users. These areas include developed campgrounds as well. And in the last five years or so, we've had a real shift in, in focusing on more urban parks and urban green space. And so what that's helped us do is understand how we take this arguably dense, complex, academic, wonky, scientific, you know, 28 page, you know, skills and ethics booklet on recreating in deserts and canyons to a very short sort of pithy 150 word or hundred word message that really gets across the most important, the most salient points. And so we've been able to simplify Leave No Trace and also put it in language that better resonates with a lot more people. So for example, last year, we came out with a, a whole suite of resources, including a social media toolkit for the Leave No Trace basics, just really the basics. If somebody's going to go out for a day hike, what do they really need to know in order to minimize that individual but cumulative impact? And that has been a, a significant step in that process of kind of getting people on the on-ramp to leave no trace, if you will. So it's really been an opportunity for us to say, this is the way we've done it for a long time and it's worked, but how do we then make the leap to really being you know, as contemporary as we can be to capitalize on the opportunity of new users, diverse users, younger users, and some places it's been older outdoor enthusiasts. We've really just been able to expand or open the aperture of leave no trace just to take a big step back and say, okay, where are we not present and how do we make sure that we are present there and what format and style and look and feel is going to work best. Awesome. Well, Ben, I really appreciate all these insights and your time and thank you for trying to help the landscapes around Moab and recognizing the needs and, and trying to meet them with education. We appreciate l t here, here in Moab. My pleasure. The Arches Leave No Trace hotspot is September 24th through 27th and features public events meant to get people involved in stewarding Arches National Park and beyond. Visit the Leave No Trace hotspot website to learn more. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.